My name is Brett Freeman. I'm one of the pastors here at First Baptist and really glad that y'all chose to come and worship with us this morning. Y'all are in for a blessing and I just pray that the Holy Spirit will be free to move in each of our lives, each of our hearts while we are here. There are a lot of things happening this weekend and today a few things out of the ordinary. One, we have a lot of guests with us, our missionary guests, and in a minute I'll have them stand so you can see where they are among us. But they also have display tables in the fellowship hall and in the lower auditorium. And after this service and in the other two services, they will be at those tables. And we want to invite you to come by, meet them, hear their stories, and just connect. Build those relationships and see what is going on in the world of missions right here in our community, around the world, with our neighbors and with the nations. I want to introduce... Our speaker who's going to come today, uh, Buster Brown, is a good friend. Y'all are going to be blessed to hear from God's Word, hear from a man who is sold out to Christ. Someone I've known since 2001. We've been able to meet up in many different countries in the world, and it's a joy to have uh, Buster with us this morning, opening God's Word and sharing from his heart. And uh, I know I ask y'all to pray with me for him and for that message that you will be as blessed as he has been in developing uh, the messages. One of the great joys of my life is reading the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal. It's just wonderful. (laughs) Editorials are great, especially Peggy Noonan. And, and on the weekend, they had this section of a number of essays and book reviews. So two weeks ago, January 27th, I guess that's three weeks ago, there was an essay entitled, the fight, To Fight the Winter Blues, Try a Dose of Nature. And there's a picture of, of, of nature. It's not a very ironic picture for us. Yeah, that's, that was another. <laughs> In this article, they talked about a new app called Mappiness, M as in Martha, Mappiness, and it's an app that has uh, done a survey of tens of thousands of people, and they came up with a startling statement, and the statement was this. They said people are the, the most happy when they're out of doors, that people are refreshed when they're out of doors. And then they said, but the problem is that we, we spend 93% of our time either indoors or in the car of our waking hours. And then the article said this. Nature also affects our social skills. A 2015 study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, researchers found that after gazing up at tall trees for just one minute, participants in Berkeley, California, behaved more helpfully to others than people who looked at an unremarkable building. The reason, question mark, momentary awe suggests University of California Irvine psychologist Paul Piff, who co-authored the study. He said, quote, I think we can say pretty certainly that having a little bit of awe every day in your life would make you happier, kinder, and more compassionate. And they talk about micro shots of nature. And as I read that, I, I thought about Psalm 19, where the psalmist says this. He says, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech 
nor are there words whose voice is not heard. It's just, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 24. And I, I just, I, I think if somebody can say that who, who believes that the created order says they support to get outdoors, if they can say that and they believe the created order is the impersonal plus time plus chance, how much more should we rejoice in the created order who know the glory and goodness of Christ? I've been preaching through the book of Colossians. And it is just a blast. And so Paul has this wonderful prayer for the church in the first chapter. A church he had never seen, but he's just heard about. And he's writing from a Roman prison. And after he prays for the church, he makes a beeline to the glory and goodness of Christ. And this is what he says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were made in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. All things were were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Wow. So so I I think how much more should I look at a tree or a river or or a fellow human being and, and say, They are the handiwork of God. And how much more should I be drawn into the majesty and the glory and the goodness of God and taste, here's where I'm going, and taste the supremacy and and, and the glory and the wonder of Christ. Everything around us was made by Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus, and in him all things hold together. I'm not going there, but just as an aside, your marriage holds together in Jesus. Your parenting holds together in Jesus. Your relationships hold together in Jesus. This church holds together in Jesus. Christ must be supreme. And I think of men and women uh, who are artists and who are gifted and who create incredible movies or paintings or musical scores and how they must sit in their room and weep when they think, that is this all that there is? I think of the horrific, and it's horrific, at times, aging process and how we want to cling to youth and look younger. And people say, no, oh, man, uh, 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 60's the new 40. No, it's not. <laughs> 60 is still 60. You know, death is there. Death is there. But, but I, I don't mind getting old and have a bad Achilles tendon and having eyes that are going and having this. I mean, that's just, I'm 63, I'm getting older. Because the best awaits. Glory awaits. Resurrection body awaits that is going to be better than Ursaine Bolt. Knowledge will be better than Stephen Hawking. Unclouded vision of the glory of Jesus. That's what awaits his people. And so, so, you know, Paul says, the outward man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed. We don't look at the outward things. We look at the inward things. So my my thesis this morning is for us to be missions-minded and Christ-glorifying We've got to have, a, a, we've got to taste and see the absolute goodness of the living God. I was thinking about creation. Just, I came across this. This is just, just the swift, the little bird, the swift, you know. The, the, the swift, just listen to this. This is just one of God's creation. I mean, it's just amazing. The swift flies as, as, as far as 120,000 miles 
a year. Just think about that. They fly up to 105 miles per hour, which is what you average driving from Columbia to Charlotte. You know? <laughs> 105 miles an hour. They, they, the National Geographic, in conjunction with a study center in Sweden, did a, did a study of 21 Swifts they captured and released. And, and of the 21, three never landed in a whole year. They mate in the air. I don't understand that. But Brett's a physics major from Georgia Tech. He can explain that after the worship service. But, I mean, you, you, just, you just think about the incredible, the incredible creation of God. And, and, and see, as the, as the psalmist contemplated the great creation of God, he had a prayer that would be single-minded and taste the goodness of God. Listen to, again, Psalm 19. I'm going to go to verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous or known sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Are you tasting the greatness of Jesus? Are you experiencing the joy of the forgiveness of sins? Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And as you walk through your sin and you grieve over it, and as you're teachable under the hand of God, then you hunger and thirst for righteousness. John Calvin said this. He said, we cannot seriously aspire to him before we become displeased with ourselves. So the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also leads us by the hand to find him. I think that's an incredible statement. We we, we cannot aspire to go hard for the living God until we're displeased with ourselves. We're poor in spirit. And we mourn over our sin. So also the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also leads us by the hand to find him. We will never go hard for the living God until we say, apart from him, I can do nothing. Now, I, I grew up in those 70s like many of you did in late 60s, early 70s. And I, I think we've gotten away from that, from this movement. But it's called the positive mental attitude movement. And I think that's in the dust, dustbin of history. Thanks be to God. It was from the pit of hell. And I used to go to retreats when I was first a believer, and you would sit in a circle and they'd say, tell four things you like about yourself. Just throw up. I mean, come on. Just tell four things. Well, I like my hair. I like the way my second toe curves to the left. I mean, I don't know. But, but we really thought that was important, and that's just a bunch of junk. You know what I like about myself? I'm a child of God, adopted in the family of Christ by the shed blood of the Savior. I am His forever. I have a future inheritance that is more glorious and more wonderful than I will ever begin to imagine. That's what I like about me. C.S. Lewis says in mere Christianity, when you see your sin and you see yourself, it, it, it's, either, it's either better to consider yourself as desperate and horrible and wicked and without, or just to forget about yourself. And he said, it's better just to forget about yourself. Be all about Jesus. I don't know if you do that here, do it here, but when I was first in that church where I'm at now, 
was very small, and I'd stand at the back, and people would leave, and they said the same thing every Sunday. Best sermon I've ever heard in my life. I thought, man, I'm, I'm, I'm getting better and better every Sunday. And, and uh, really, and, and there's a guy named Alexander White who was a Scotsman, and he was a pretty honest guy. And one day a lady came up to me after service and said, Oh, Pastor White, that's the best sermon I've ever heard. You're just wonderful, wonderful. She said, Lady, if you could see into my heart, you would spit in my face. That's the way to stop conversations. You know? That's the conversation stopper. But, but, but it's true. So I'm, one of my favorite preachers is a name, man named Martin Lloyd-Jones who's trained to be a physician, then became a pastor for 30 years in London. He wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. It's one of the best books I've ever read. He also wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount called The Sermon on the Mount. He was very trendy in the way he presented himself. And, but he, he talks about this beatitude that says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that's where we're going to be today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And he says this. He says, In spite of all that has been written about this beatitude, the meaning of this verse still eludes us. Our best plan is just to grasp something of its central meaning and emphasis. He says, you know, you can't scope the depth of this, that the vision of God is the sunum bonum, or the highest desire of the believer. And so we're going to just kind of scope it and look at it this morning. So let me give you a definition. To see God, to have purity of heart, is the commitment to the single-minded pursuit of God in his Trinitarian beauty. The knowledge or seeing or tasting, and they're all synonyms, of the Lord brings joy, purpose, and happiness to my life. So purity of heart involves being clean, absolutely, but it involves primarily a single-minded pursuit in our calling, whether you're a mechanic or a housewife or a stay-at-home parent or, or, or a, a, a journalist or a physician or an attorney or whatever, in, in your particular calling at your age stage, it is, it is pressing into a single-minded pursuit of the living God because the tasting and the knowing and the beholding of God is the joy of your heart. Now, Psalm 86, David is praying... Uh, a prayer of deep need. So many other prayers of David are just prayers of deep need. The, the issue is verse 14. He says, Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life, and they do not set you before them. So, God, there's a group of guys that are trying to kill me. So he's praying. And as he prays, he rehearses in his mind the greatness of God. He says in verse 4, Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Verse 5, Lord, you are good and forgiving, and you abound in steadfast love to all call upon you. Verse 8, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Verse 10, you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. So in the midst of this great need, David rehearses the character of God. And then, then he comes to the pinnacle of this, I'm being hunted and pursued to be killed psalm. And it's Psalm 86, verse 11. Listen. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth, unite 
my heart to fear your name. I thought, here's David hiding in a cave, probably, being pursued by men. King Saul and his henchmen. And his greatest prayer is, Lord, in the midst of this, give me singleness of heart to see and know you and to be bowled over by the greatness of your name. Are you tasting and experiencing the goodness of Christ? Or in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 rehearses the greatness of the cross, the glory of the cross, what Christ has done for us and how our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, and how God works through difficulties. And and then he talks about Christ being foreknown before the foundation of the earth and shedding his blood for our sin. And he just, he glories, and he comes to chapter 2. And he says, therefore, or so, put away all malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander, And like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he builds builds his relational apologetic upon two principles here. After he talked about the glory of Christ, he says, number one, you've tasted that the Lord is good. Tasted. You've experienced. And as you experience that the Lord is good, you get rid of malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And, 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 and as you taste that the Lord is good, you continually taste that the Lord is good because you, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you can grow in your salvation. I need the scripture in the body of Christ by the spirit poured into my life. I was with a parent several years ago, and their baby was crying. And the mom said this to me, newborn baby. He cries when his diaper is dirty or he's hungry. And I thought, so do I. (laughs) In this regard, I cry out when I'm uncomfortable or hungry. And in a fallen world, I am often uncomfortable and often hungry. And this word sustains me. I need to be a man of the book. If we have, there aren't many of these people around, but there are people around who study the Bible to understand truth, and they do it in such a way that they become doctrinaire, and they are hard to live with because they've got an answer for everything. Even if the Bible doesn't have the answer, they have it somehow. And, and then there are many, many others who are, so they're word, word only without the Holy Spirit, kind of, sort of. That's a strong statement. But then there are other people who, who have, who want experience, they want to experience, and they give, get a smattering of Scripture that you get in, on the Hallmark card at the grocery store. It's just a slogan here and a slogan there. Yeah, but, and they drive off in a thousand different directions. And what I am pleading for, for you to pray for me, and I pray for you, is that we would be Bible-saturated, Jesus-centered, cross-driven people who are anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit. See, that, that's the combination. That's the, it's, it's word and spirit. Word and spirit. And only the Holy Spirit gives that balance. So 
I'll ask you again, are you tasting the goodness of the Lord? Which compels you to walk by faith. Are, are you enjoying the Abba, Father, embrace of our God, which leads you to worship and adoration? Are you gladdened by the forgiveness of sins? Does it make you glad? I, th- I thought recently that if I just got up every morning and did the last part of the Apostles' Creed, my day should fly. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, all of God's people. I believe in the communion of the saints, or those who have gone before me who live for the Lord. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And I ask, do I rejoice in that? Am I glad that my sins are forgiven, that when I was dead in my transgressions, God breathed life into me by the Spirit, and I'm His? Well, um, so I've got a kind of a weird practice, several weird practices. My wife tells me repeatedly, but one thing I do is on my calendar, I have death dates of some of my heroes because it's one thing to be born. A lot of us can be born. That's a joke. All of us are born. (laughs) But let let me tell you. As I study church history, a lot of people do not finish well. Okay? So I celebrate people that finished well. So uh, um, January 25th, for example, was the death date of Winston Churchill. Um, February the 18th? No, no. 15th. Anyway, was was the death date of B.B. Warfield, one of my favorite theologians from Princeton, who was just an incredible man. And then February the 18th, Saturday a week ago, was the death date of Martin Luther. Died at age 62. The guy that started the Reformation. Had a professor seminary that said Martin Luther was a monk who read the Bible too much. And uh, he's right. He's right. So, so Luther was, very quickly, Luther was raised in a privileged home, uh, upwardly mobile home. His dad was an entrepreneur who was making lots of money, wanted Luther to take over the family business. Luther went to law school to get some training. Uh, much to his dad's great joy, his dad's name was Hans. And Luther was coming through the forest one night. There was an incredible thunderstorm, uh, lightning hitting at his feet. He rolled up under a huge tree uh, there in Germany, and he cried out, uh, Saint Anne, who was the, protect, the, the, the protector of people, if you save me, I will become a monk. And he was saved, and so he became a monk, entered the Augustinian order, much to the deep chagrin and horror of his father. Um, So Luther's in the monastery, a very sincere man, and he really believed that through self-effort and through work and through confession and through literally beating his body and fasting that he would get God in his corner. He had a confessor, somebody he confessed to named Johann von Stoppitz, who was a wonderful man. And he would go to von Stoppitz every day, several times during the day, and knock on his door and say, von Stoppitz, I need to confess. And he would confess sometimes for an hour or two all of his sins. Um, and finally, von Stoppitz said this to Luther. Luther, do something worth confessing. Kill your father. Commit adultery. You're driving me crazy. He said it tongue-in-cheek, of course. But then von Stoppitz, who was his boss, said, why don't you teach Psalms and the book of Romans at the seminary? 
So Luther did that. And he came to Romans 1 where it says, The just shall live by faith. And as he pondered the text and hit upon the text, and he said, I came to realize that I am saved not because of my work, but because of the righteousness of Jesus who died as my substitute. And he called it an alien righteousness. He said, it happened outside of me. And God has put it to my account. And this is what he said. When I realized that, I felt as if I had been born anew and I had entered into paradise and I walked through the doors. So, Martin Luther. And then a few years after that, Luther, who started the Reformation in 1517 by mistake, Luther wrote a hymn that's become one of the greatest hymns in the Christian faith. It's entitled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's a great hymn. And one stanza goes like this. Uh, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Now, I, I may be wrong here. I believe that when Luther wrote that, let goods and kindred family go, this mortal life also. By the way, he got married to a a runaway nun, and they had six children. And they had a wonderful marriage. Wonderful marriage. He said, I will never grow used to waking up in the morning and having pigtails on the pillow next to me. (laughs) Just a sweet marriage. Anyway, yeah. Goods and kindred. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abide still. His kingdom is forever. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him, and the name is Jesus. But I really believe that Luther wrote let goods and kindred go in a giddy, laughing spirit because he realized that this life is passing and that eternity awaits. And so he's pleading for singleness of heart which desires to taste and see the greatness of Christ. Singleness of heart is like we, we deal with sin. James chapter 4 says this. Submit yourselves to the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then he goes on and says this. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Turn your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. I think what James is saying is this, is that, is that we deal with a holy God, so we deal with sin seriously. And, and we don't take sin lightly because we know that sin keeps us from seeing and tasting the glory and the goodness of the Lord. Here's my example. I live on the beach. or I live in Charleston on the beach. And but Charleston's on the coast, as you know. South Carolina geography is very good here. And so it's like, it's like being on the beach on a, on a June morning. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's low tide. Children are playing. Dogs are running. There are people surfing. And, and you sit there, and it's 82 degrees, and um, you, you, you fall asleep. And all of a sudden, 
you wake up and this clear day, some clouds have rolled in and it's covered up the sun. And you're, you're cold. The wind that was comforting now is chilly. And you think to yourself, I should have brought a cover up top. I did not. This is miserable. Or if you've been sl- swimming and you're waiting for the sun to dry you off, you get cold. That, that's my illustration. That's what sin does. Sin keeps me from seeing the basking love of the triune God in his glory. So I have the ability, in my illustration, to push the clouds away by confessing my sin and having the sweetness of repentance and running to Christ. And and so I, I back up and I say, are you tasting the joy of knowing the greatness of the forgiveness of your sin? Are you single-hearted in pursuing him? And, and uh, how much more time do I have? Five minutes, six minutes, okay. Y'all are very gracious. Okay. So this, I was writing about this the other day. That's why I've got my journal out. But Colossians... Paul says something that it, every time I read it, the first time I read it years and years and years ago, I just went, are you kidding me? And I still read it today and I go, are you kidding me? This is what Paul says. It's, it's an incredible statement. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's in prison. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. He talks about the the mystery that has been hidden but now is uncovered, which is Christ. Verse 27, the, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Therefore, we preach Jesus. We proclaim him and we preach him and we teach him and we warn every man so that we may present every man and woman complete in Christ. And I'm, I'm going, what, what do you mean that you're, you're filling up in your flesh the sufferings that are lacking from what Christ did? And I, I just, so here's my stab at it. In every generation, in every locale, every zip code where the church of Jesus is, there are, are men and women, we're, we're called to be pilgrims and to live in such a way that we support and love and care for and if need be, suffer to fill up the afflictions that this generation needs to see for the gospel to go out. That's amazing to me. We're, we're to live as, as pilgrim people. I was with Jeff last night, we were talking about just, just what it means to be older and um, how, that, 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 that when, and I wrote this down, when, when at the moment of the meltdown in life, and we all have meltdowns, and the older you get, the more meltdowns you have the potential of having. So you're 24, not many meltdowns. 74, a lot of meltdowns. It's true. It's just true. We live in a fallen world. So, so when you go into a meltdown, you go into one or two positions. Either you become cynical and cold. And I see that all the time. You just get cold, cynical. Oh, life is screwed up. People are screwed up. Or 
you go to a true depth with God as we welcome our, our pilgrim status. Either we remain citizens of this world psychologically or we enter a citizenship that is above. And what I'm saying is that, that as, as you say, I, I want to taste the goodness of God. We are called to be a pilgrim people. And let me just give you a, a couple of points here, and I'm, I'll close in, in five minutes. To be a pilgrim person, I wrote down three things. Number one, I've got to be passionate about the mystery, which is Jesus. I've got to be about Jesus. I've got to see the scripture fulfilled in Jesus. I've got to be about the greatness of the eternal God who became a man. Blows my mind. Rose victorious over death, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father, and is praying for this church today. And you and me. It's amazing. So, so behold the greatness of Christ. Number two, to be a pilgrim person, I've got to have standards in my life that reflect the greatness of Christ. Here's my plug. We're pilgrim people in the way we handle our time and our money. I believe tithing is biblical. I do. And we're, this church right now is having, what do you, no, it's not a faith promise. Faith commitment, faith commitment offering that, that will support the gospel going out. See, part of being a pilgrim person is I am not seduced by the allurements of this world. I live differently. And God calls all of us to different places in different ways, but I believe there, there are certain standards. So I, I would encourage you to give above your tithes to this faith commitment offering. And then thirdly, either I am a person who goes. It may be here, it may be Botswana, it may be New Delhi, it may be the inner city of Chicago. I go. But I'm, I'm a person who's on mission. And, and, I, and I do that. Jonathan Edwards, I just, Jonathan Edwards is one of my main men. He just, I like him. This is what he says. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper happiness. It is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully and to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and children or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows. But God is a substitute. These are but scattered beams, but God is a fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. I, I just love that. I'm going to say, why can't I write that way? Everything, the, the greatest meal you have is a foretaste of the banquet in glory. The most warm, embrace of friendship you have is just a nano embrace of what you have in heaven. So I want to be a pilgrim because glory awaits. I'm closing right now. In, in 1514, there was a battle called the Battle of Agincourt. It was in France. And it was one of the greatest days in the history of English history. If you're English, if you're French, it wasn't a good day. So, so the English army goes to, uh, they're, they're south of Calais, a place called Agincourt, uh, 1415. And the English army is outnumbered, we now know historically, seven to one or six to one. There are 30,000 Frenchmen Seven to 9,000 British soldiers, 30,000, 35,000 French. Um, and and, and they're, 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 the Brits are playing on, it's, just, it's an away game. They're on the home field of the French. And they've been racked with dysentery. The, the whole army is just sick. And they're outnumbered six, seven to one. It doesn't look good. And 
what happened though, the British introduced something that day called the long bow. The French had the crossbow. Bing. The British had And, and on that particular day, uh, the, the British killed 7,000 French, took 1,500 captive. They lost 600 men. And it was a great victory. And about 140 years later, a guy was born the same year John Calvin died named William Shakespeare. And William Shakespeare wrote a play about this called Henry V. There's a speech in that play that, I just, that just thrills my heart. And you've heard it, and it's great, and just read it. But, but the men are being assembled to fight and go to their death. And there's a guy named Westmoreland, the, the, the cousin of Henry V. And he says, oh, if only one one-thousandth of the men in England who aren't working today were here with us, we might have a chance. How's that for forward thinking? And this is what Henry V says. Just read part of it. What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland? No, no. My fair cousin, if we are marked to die today, to do our country loss, and if we live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. He says, I'm, by Jove, I'm not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. If it yearns me not, if men my garments wear, but such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, then I am the most offending soul alive. Whoa. And then Henry says, you know, today is St. Crispian's Day. In the years to come, there'll be people who are here today, who will stand up and they'll say, tomorrow is St. Crispian's Day. And then they'll lift their sleeves and they'll show their scars and say, I got these scars with King Henry V on St. Crispian's Day when we beat the French. And he said, and men who are now asleep in their bed will curse their manhood because they weren't here with us on St. Crispian's Day. And I read that and I thought, man, what a great charge to missions. If it's a sin to covet honor, then I'm the biggest coveter alive. If it's a sin to covet the honor and the glory and the exaltation of Jesus, is the, and you know what? I, I want to live in such a way that when I die, there's a sense of, well done, good and faithful servant. You live as a pilgrim person. You live as a pilgrim person. And not only that, but in this present life, as, as I live that way, I taste and I see that the Lord is good. I, know, I, I taste it. I experience it. I, I see the greatness of Jesus by the power of the Spirit through the Word of God. So, so thank you for that. And thank you for being a wonderful people. And God bless you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Buster. That actually looks better than my... You know, when we think about just the, the greatness of God and the greatness of the mission that he's called us to and, and the greatness of the honor of being a part of that, and that's kind of what this, this whole weekend has been about and what this whole focus has been about. And many of you have had opportunity over this weekend to connect with some of our missionaries and hear glimpses of, of what God is doing uh, here, in, here in the United States, but all across the world. And there are many ways for us to be involved in that. Uh, one of the first and the foremost is prayer. And that's why we had the prayer guides on the front end of this conference.
forms, and we ask you to continue to do that. I'm going to ask you to continue to pray after this. In the lobby to my right, to your left, uh, there's a prayer guide, Seeking God for the City. 40 days of prayer. It's a great follow-up from this conference. Starts March 1st, goes to Palm Sunday. You'll be praying uh, through different scriptures, through different focus groups within our country, but you'll also be covering the world in prayer. And so I'm just going to encourage you, pick up one of those prayer guides uh, for your family out in the lobby. Be a person of prayer. As you've already heard uh, Buster say, go. Just to say, God, I'm available. I'm available to go. And maybe that takes me across the street. Maybe that means I'm cultivating my cul-de-sac. Maybe it's going to be I'm going to go on a short-term trip. For some of you here, it may be that God's going to use this weekend. And I always think of Greg as a story and stuff that God's going to use this weekend to radically redirect your life. And going for you is going to be going in an entirely different direction, an entirely different trajectory. And so I'm just going to ask God just to say, here I am. Here I am. We talked about that last week. Here am I. Send me. I'm available. Whatever that looks like, God, I'm available as your servant. And I'm just going to pray that God will do that in some of our lives. But I also want to just challenge you to give. And that's what this faith commitment offering is about. And, and you've seen information about it now for a number of weeks in your uh, worship folder, some information about uh, the faith commitment offering and how that would be uh, distributed upon the goals. But what we're going to ask you to do today is to take out that little uh, gray card that says faith commitment offering. I'm just going to ask you to say, God, what would you, have, what would you have me to give? Of all that you have blessed me with, over and above the tithe, what would you have me to give? And many of you know... I. I grew up in a family of kind of accountants and and folks that like did that stuff. And so my mind just naturally tracks that way. And one of the things is I just do the math very quickly in my head. What I know is that if everybody that claims to be a follower of Christ and claims First Baptist as their family, if they gave 1%, I mean, my guess is that Almost all of us could live on 1% less and not take a dent hardly to our lifestyle. But this is what I know. If every one of us gave just 1% over and above what we give, just 1% of our income for the global cause of the glory of Christ and missions across the street and around the world, we would have by far the largest faith commitment offering we have ever had in the history of our church. Yes, one stinking measly percent, right? Right? Think about that. Think about that. It probably would not radically affect your lifestyle in a negative way. For most of us, we wouldn't feel it. But it could make a radical difference for eternity, beginning in Fort Mill, South Carolina, and extending across the globe. For some of you, that may be pitching it way too low. For some of you, it may be a step up. And I'm just going to challenge you. Could you even think about it? One percent. One percent for the global glory of God to see what God might do through that. I want to just lead us in prayer. And then as this video is going, I'm going to ask you to take a few moments with that faith commitment offering card. And then our ushers are going to come forward and receive our offering and ask you to take that, that uh, commitment card and drop that in the basket as it comes by. You say, well, Jeff, maybe I already filled one out. But God's telling you, you didn't fill it out enough, all right? And maybe you need to put another one in uh, today. That's okay. We'll, we'll correct it for you. We'll correct it for you, all right? Let's bow our heads together. Oh, Father. 
Thank you for this weekend. Thank you for what you've been doing. Thank you for the challenge that you have placed upon our lives. Thank you for the, the, the calling to be a child of yours now and forever I am by your grace and mercy. And Father, to be a steward of all that you've entrusted to us, expertise, talent, energies, time, and yes, treasure. And Father, we just bring all of that before you right now. And as we lay it at your feet, we just say, Father, Master, Lord, how would you have your servants steward their one and only life in a way that's going to make a difference for all eternity? Lord, that is our prayer as we sit before you and respond before you in these moments. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.